Thanks, Karen. What um, awesome, great praises. Thanks so much for sharing that with us today, Allie and Sharon. I appreciate that so much. It's what I look forward to every week is hearing you praise God for who he is and his uh, mighty work in our lives. Well, good morning. Welcome back to Women in the Word. I have a couple of uh, announcements for you before we get started, and one of them is about spring break. Uh, some of you with school-aged children may be having spring break in the next couple of weeks. We will continue to meet here at Women in the Word. We will not take off for spring break because everyone's spring break is different. So please plan on being here. Maybe arrange a play date or something for your children if you can that morning. And the second one I want to um, announce to you is you may have seen a card that looks like this on your table. It's talking about a, an opportunity that we have. We're going to be sending another teaching team, uh, a small team of gals that are teachers to Tanzania again. We've done this three times in the past. We're going to go for round number four in May. We'd love for you to partner with us in doing that the way you have so graciously done that in the past. The, uh, it's an opportunity for us as women to build into women's lives in Africa who don't have opportunities every week to come and study the scriptures together. And what our teaching team does is go and gather up the leaders of various churches around whatever part of the country we're in. We share with them how to teach the Bible, how to... Uh, start women's Bible studies and small groups in their own churches. We give them a lodging and food for a week, which for many of them is a great gift to have food for a week. And we give them a Bible, which is an amazing thing for them to have their own personal Swahili Bible. And for each woman, that costs around $85 for them to come to a week-long conference, be food, fed, and have a Bible. And you can partner uh, with us in that conference by um, donating and sponsoring one woman for $85. You can do that by stopping at the information desk or even on Sunday morning making the check to Christ Chapel and then putting Tanzania Women's Mission Trip in the bottom corner, and that will help. So come join us in Africa this year and be a part of our Women's Leadership Conference. You know, I know you're already glad you're here because you've been in your small groups. There are great discussions in your small groups every morning. Probably the most important thing you hear every week is in your small group. So I know you're glad you're here. But you're going to be extra glad you're here today because, as Karen's already alluded to just a little bit, we have a special guest that is coming to be part of Women in the Word this morning and to finish out the time with us this morning. Um, a guest of the male persuasion, which we don't have um, men in here very often, so that's going to be fun. You know, after eight weeks of reading Paul's letters, it's impossible not to see how much he loved his fellow believers, those he had shared the gospel with, those he had sacrificed for. You know, Paul is not only an apostle. But as the first century church begins, it's very obvious if you pay very much attention to who Paul is, you can see that he is a pastor to the core, a true shepherd with a great love for and concern for his sheep. And as we finish Second Thessalonians today and Paul's two letters, we're going to see his heart for the body of Christ and for the New Testament church. And then we're going to finish our time together uh, with 
our very own senior pastor and shepherd, Dr. Ted Kitchens. He is going to come and share his pastor's heart with us about the future of our body of Christ right here uh, in Christ Chapel and about the future of our church. You know, Bill Egner uh, cracks me up, but he always describes Ted as such a consummate pastor shepherd that he says the man smells like sheep. He's... Yeah, and and I think that's true. And uh, Chad is going to be here to share his heart with us. I'm going to finish up early today, so don't panic. We're not going to run your lunch plans. But I'm going to finish up early, and then Chad is going to be here to share with us the last half of the hour. Uh, it'll be a great opportunity for you. You can stay and ask him questions or talk to him afterwards. I know on Sunday mornings you may you know, think, oh, I want to ask him about this or that in the future of the church. Well, this is going to be your opportunity to hear what he has to say and then to ask him some questions. But before we do that, we are going to go to the Word of God. So if you haven't already, open your Bibles to Second Thessalonians, and let's start together in chapter 3. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 for you while you're turning there. Paul says, finally, brothers, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored, just as it was with you. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not everyone has faith. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. John MacArthur is also a pastor. He's a teacher and a theologian. And he says this about being a pastor. He says, being a pastor is the highest calling for a godly man, not only in privilege, but also in obligation. And as we finish Second Thessalonians right here in this last chapter, we have great insight into Paul's heart as a pastor. Paul not only knew in his heart, you can tell, Paul, there was never any doubt in Paul's mind that being a pastor was a high calling. But he also takes pretty seriously his obligations of being a pastor, of being a spiritual shepherd to God's flock. I don't doubt that Paul himself smells a little bit like sheep and that he is a man with a pastor shepherd's heart that has a great love not only for his sheep but also for God's church. And you know what I love the most is the very first thing that we see about Paul here in these first five verses, uh, his pastor's heart is his humility which is what you want in every single pastor shepherd that you ever have. You want a shepherd that is humble. My favorite definition of humility, you've heard me say it from up here many times, is knowing who we are in light of who God is. You know, God is the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the justifier. He's the sanctifier. It's God that's all-powerful and all-knowing. We are simply his people. We are simply the sheep of his pasture, the creator's pasture. We are simply his servants, his beloved. And Paul never, never, even as a pastor, Paul never gets that confused. And here he shows it. You know, Paul, in the world that Paul lived in, Paul was probably unequaled 
not only as his effectiveness as a minister of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, but, you know, Paul had amazing natural abilities. You may not know this about Paul, but he had the finest of rabbinical educations. He had been educated in in the finest way as a Jewish man. He was a brilliant thinker, a brilliant thinker, and probably one of the most gifted communicators of his time. But Paul, as a pastor, doesn't stand on any of those qualities as a pastor. What we see here instead is that he is a man with such a humble heart that he asks for prayer, that the message of the gospel would be delivered. He's not depending on his gifts as a great speaker. He asks for prayer that he and his companions would be delivered from evil. He's not depending on his ability as a great thinker to get himself out of trouble. And he assures the Thessalonians here that it's the Lord. It's not Paul, but it's the Lord who will faithfully strengthen them and protect them and direct their hearts. As a pastor, Paul understands who he is in light of who God is. And that's what he stands on. He stands on God's power. He stands on God's love and faithfulness, not on his own giftedness. His heart of humility here is a great, great example to the leadership of the Thessalonian church that he shepherds. It's what he wants for them as they begin their church and establish their leadership. William Barclay says this in his commentary about Paul right here in these verses. He says, There is something deeply moving in the thought of this giant among men asking for the prayers of the Thessalonians who so well recognize their own weaknesses. Nowhere is Paul's humility clearer to see. As a pastor with a heart for his sheep, Paul lives out Proverbs 3.34, where it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's obvious God has given Paul grace for his humility. Let's continue reading. Let's read verses 6 through 10. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle, who does not live according to the teaching you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you. We did not eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. You know, when the earthquake in Chile happened um, in the last couple of weeks, there were tsunami warnings. This was pretty interesting. They sent out tsunami warnings all over the world. Um, And these warnings were meant to protect people from the harm and the destruction and the devastation that they were concerned this earthquake was going to send out. And as a pastor, Paul sets off some great warning bells here for the Thessalonians, not just with his words, but with his example. As a shepherd, as we've talked about, Paul is unsurpassed. He is a shepherd that continually keeps watch over his sheep, and he continually runs out and gets them and rebuilds the fences to keep them out of trouble. And that's what he's doing right here in these verses. He is running out to get them. He's rebuilding the fences, trying to uh, use his warnings to keep his sheep out of trouble. Now, we're going to talk about the meanings of those warnings in just a few minutes, but what I want you to see here is that his warnings that Paul gives, his words and his example, 
show us how tireless Paul is as a pastor and his concern for them. You know, he's already warned them. He's warned them when he was there teaching in person. He's warned them in his letter, um, in his first letter, 1 Thessalonians 5.14 on your verse sheet says, And we urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle. And 1 Thessalonians 4.11, he says, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you. And now he warns them again in letter number two. Apparently the false doctrine that we talked about last week, believing that they were already experiencing the day of the Lord, had produced a group of Christian loafers in the church. Um, at Thessalonica, they were actually sitting around waiting for Jesus' return, which might seem like admirable faith until mealtime came. And then they looked around to see who had brought them some food, who'd left some groceries on the doorstep, who had cooked for them. They were depending on the fact that there must be some other believers out there that were out working because they were going to rest until the Lord came. You know, nowhere in Paul's teaching to them about end times, and he did some significant teaching about end times, if you remember from last week, nowhere in any of that had he ever encouraged them or said to them, you know, stop working, just sit down and wait. Jesus will be here in a minute. In fact, it was just the opposite. When he was with them, sharing the gospel and giving them truth about the church and about the future times, he and his companions actually never stopped working. He describes them in these verses as working night and day so that they would not be a burden. Paul has such a heart for his sheep about how they are living that he and his companions have sacrificed in order to be their example, in order to be a living warning and model for them. You know, as ministers of the gospel, he and his companions could have, in good conscience, received support for the work that they were doing, for their teaching and preaching. There wouldn't have been anything wrong with that. But they purposely chose not to do that as a warning and a model for the Thessalonians. As a pastor... Paul's warnings and his personal example come straight from his heart. He does not want his sheep to be harmed by the foolishness of their own behavior. A disorderly life and a disobedient life for those he loved in Thessalonica, I believe, would break Paul's pastor's heart. What Paul so clearly wants as a pastor with a heart for his sheep is what he thanked God for in 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2 on your verse sheet or actually verses 2 and 3. We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul wants for his friends as a pastor. And because of that, he perseveres in warning them and in being their example, even at his own expense. His pastor's heart can do nothing less. The next way we see Paul's pastor's heart for his sheep is in his concern for the health and the future of the church. Let's read verses 11 through 15 together. We hear that some among you are idle. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. And as for you, brothers, never tire of doing what is right. 
If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of him. Do not associate with him in order that he may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. You know, some of you that have children in We Care this morning know that they're over in what we call the Windsor Children's Building, which is named for Chad Windsor, who was an executive pastor here at Christ Chapel for 10 years until his death in 1998. You know, Chad and his family, Juanel and their two kiddos, had been part of Christ Chapel for a while while he was an executive of Southland Corporation. He worked his way up to the top, and while he was an executive at Southland Corporation. He actually went to Southwestern Seminary and completed his Ph.D. And after graduating, Chad made the decision, uh, because of his great love and heart for the church, to leave his corporate America job and come to Christ Chapel as our executive pastor in 1988. Now, in 1988... We were still so small that Chad, as the executive pastor, wore many, many hats. And if you were here at that time, you know that um, he was a gifted teacher and preacher, but he also was pretty gifted at mopping the floor and making the coffee, which he had to do often back in those days. Now, unfortunately for all of us who loved him and his family, Chad was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer at the age of 48, and he died within the year of his diagnosis. Now, there are a lot of things I could say about Chad this morning, but one of my most outstanding memories of Chad was um, when he was sick, and that is how determined he was during his treatment and during his pain and even during the shock of realizing he was going to see Jesus before the rest of us. One of the things I remember is his great desire to make sure that his illness and his death did not harm the church, this church, in any way. In the midst of his own struggles, personal struggles, huge struggles, he was concerned about the health and the future of Christ's chapel. I remember going to Harris Hospital to have meetings with him, and he would be in his hospital bed, and we would talk about what the next two years of my ministry looked like, and both of us knew that he wouldn't be there for any of that. But we were going to talk about it anyway, and I was going to write those goals down on paper for him. Uh, I also remember going to his house and meeting with him over budgets, Budgets while the hospice nurses were there uh, giving him pain medication. Chad had a pastor's heart for the church, so much so that he was not going to let even his own death and his own pain be a stumbling block for the health and the future of this church. And certainly, we didn't talk about this, but I believe certainly Paul could have been Chad's example for um, his passion for the church because Paul also has such a heart for the church that he did whatever was necessary in his own life to ensure the health and the future of the church. Now, Paul is not dying here, but in verse 6 and continuing through verse 14, we see him instruct the Thessalonians in a very practical but delicate and sensitive church issue, one that could be a stumbling block and has been a stumbling block in the um, health and future of many churches. And that issue is... How do you handle disobedient believers that are in your midst? Those who um, know Jesus and worship with a congregation, but they don't heed spiritual instruction or live it out in their own life. And they don't own their own responsibilities in Christ. And Paul tackles that stumbling block of disobedience head on here. Um, 
back in verse 6, as he enlists the Thessalonians who are in obedience in the church with correcting those who are not in obedience in the church. In other words, he puts the ball in the Thessalonians' court, in the majority who are in obedience. Uh, And he gives them five guidelines here, practical guidelines for discipline in the church, which is designed not to punish anyone, but to bring about repentance and restoration. Um, Now, Paul may have known uh, that asking the majority to be involved in restoring the minority is usually not a popular idea. In fact, we shy away from this idea all the time in the church today. We don't really like to talk about it. And I would bet that they probably shied away from it a little bit in uh, Thessalonica. But Paul, because he is a pastor to the core, is not going to shy away from it here. He loves the church, and he wants to make sure that the church stays healthy. As a pastor, he loves the sheep. Even if they're straying, he loves them, and he loves them enough to discipline them, just like any good father disciplines a son that he delights in. When I was reading this and thinking about Paul, I was reminded of this verse in Proverbs 3 where it says, My son, do not despise the Lord's correction. Do not resent his rebuke, because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. So it's out of love for the church and for his beloved sheep that Paul gives the Thessalonians the first practical guideline back in verse 6, where he says, Keep away from every brother who is idle and doesn't live according to the teaching you've received from us. Now, I want you to keep in mind, hopefully you talked about this in your small group, that the guidelines we're talking about here are believers in the church, Um, talking to other believers in the church. This is not what we're asking you to go out and do with your unbelieving co-worker or your neighbor that you're um, not sure what in the world their religious or spiritual leanings might be. This is for us. This is for family, believer to believer. And Paul has a practical truth in mind here when he advises them, uh, when he says, hey guys, stop hanging out with those who are idle or disobedient. He gives them that um, practical advice because he's hoping that this lack of contact will serve to point out to the offenders that their behavior isn't acceptable and to point out that, you know, there's a spiritual gap that exists between believers that are walking in obedience to the truth and believers that are not. And he wants them to realize that if we continue on as believers who are walking in the truth... In our relationships with other believers, like nothing is wrong, even when we know in our hearts something is wrong, that our friend who is living a disorderly and disobedient life may never have a wake-up call. Limiting our contact is a way to give a wake-up call to those that we love in the church, but those who are disobedient in the church. Our second practical guideline that Paul gives us here involving discipline Um, is one that I called, Be Clear on the Spiritual Truth. And you know, Paul makes sure, right here in 2 Thessalonians, that there is no reason for any of the Thessalonians to misunderstand the truth that he's talking about. And that's important for us if we're going to be involved in uh, discipline with another believers. And it's also important for the ones that are receiving discipline to be clear on the spiritual truth. You know, Paul has told them the truth about idleness in person. 
He's modeled it to them by their example. He's written it now in two letters. The truth is clear here to the Thessalonians about work and about idleness. And it needs to be clear for all of us if we're going to be involved in any form of discipline. Paul's example is worth noting. Do not enter into a discipline situation until you are clear on what the scriptures say. You need to know what the truth is in your mind. And you need to make sure that those that you are approaching or warning are also clear on what the scriptures say. This isn't a situation of misunderstanding the um, idleness in the Thessalonian church. Paul knows there's not any way I could have said it better. They understand the truth. So he's encouraging the Thessalonians to move forward in their discipline plan. In verse 11, we see Paul's next practical guideline, and that is don't turn a blind eye to disobedience in the church. You know, I laughed because in verse 11, Paul actually wraps out the disobedient here by saying, "Um, I've heard this is happening in your church. And I think he does that to call attention to them so that they're not going to be able to say, Oh, you know, we we heard you talk about some things, but we didn't know that was here. We thought maybe that was in the church, you know, down the street. You know, we were busy, and we never really realized it was happening here. And so Paul doesn't give them that chance. He says, yes, it's in your church. Not only are they busy, they are busy bodies. He's pointing out, which is a true thing. It's a slippery slope, isn't it, ladies? Disorder begets disorder. You know, they start out with not having a lot to do, and then they begin to get involved inappropriately in other people's lives, and who knows what happens after that. Disorder begets disorder. And so Paul wants it to stop for the sake of the church. Now, I want to point out that... um, Even though we should never turn a blind eye, we should also never jump to conclusions about the behavior of other believers in the church. Um, Paul doesn't. Uh, He understands what's going on. It's been clear what's going on. So he's not jumping to conclusions, and he's not encouraging the Thessalonians to jump to conclusions. It's not a case of, you know, my sister's aunt's cousin's uh, dog told me this was going on in your life. Uh, He knows what's going on in their life. So uh, don't jump to conclusions, but don't turn a blind eye. And, you know, Paul doesn't say that because he enjoys besting people. He doesn't turn a blind eye because he cares so much about their lives, and he cares so much about the future and the health of the Thessalonian church. And he knows what we must never forget is that our behavior as believers, both in the church and outside the church, impacts those around us. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. And I say this to shame you. You know, even in the church, we don't think about it, but even in the church, unbelievers are watching us. They are watching how we live our lives, and we're watching how we deal with those who are not living, walking the talk, so to speak. We must not turn a blind eye to disobedience because people are watching. 
Paul pauses with his guidelines in verse 12, and he gives one final direct warning to the disobedient. He kind of looks him in the face there just a minute. I don't know, when you had a two-year-old, I have a little grandson that's 16 months old now, and so when I really need for him to hear me, I have to get right down in that little face. And that's kind of what Paul does here in uh, verse 12. He gives one final warning. He says, settle down and earn your own bread. But then he goes back to the obedient majority in verse 13 because he knows their role is really critical and important here. He said all those warnings and it haven't mattered. So he's continuing to enlist um, the Thessalonian obedience in this. And he gives them a simple but powerful principle of discipline as he encourages the obedient majority to just simply keep doing what they know is right. You know, there are going to be times when we have to stop and address disobedience in the church directly with others. But another part of the process that we can't overlook that is so important is that the rest of us that may not be involved directly in that confrontation, we just keep doing what is right. We just don't stop doing the right thing. In this case, it's that the Thessalonians should keep on working, keep on earning their own bread. Their right behavior is going to go a long way uh, in being a living example in the process of discipline. I read a great quote uh, that said, Exemplary conduct serves as a constant reprimand to wrongdoers and is incentive for them to turn from their delinquency. And it's true, and Paul encourages that right here with the Thessalonians, where he says to them, keep doing what is right, because your behavior is a source of truth and encouragement for those who are not getting it right. They are going to look at you and say, Okay, you're doing this and I'm doing this. Um, Maybe I should come over here and do what you're doing. And finally in verse 14, Paul is an apostle and an authoritative figure in the church. Gives his final counsel and his strongest admonition in person. You know, we've talked about how he's told him in person. He's told him in his letter. He's now, in his second letter, given them a process to walk through um, and disciplining those who are disobedient. But now he says, okay, if none of that works, uh, if nothing that I've said, done, or counseled, nothing that you've done works, then it's time to do the hard thing. And nobody likes to do the hard thing. But Paul says, then it's time to do the hard thing. He said at the beginning of uh, the passage in verse 6, he said, you know, keep away from those who are idle. But now he gives it a more, a stronger a more direct action where he advocates what you might call complete social ostracism here. Um, Although he's not talking about public humiliation, Paul is clear to the Thessalonians that they must take direct and decisive action so that their disobedient brother will come to a point of brokenness in their own heart that causes them to search their consciences and leads them where he wants them to go which is back to repentance and to restoration in the body of Christ. You know, his hope is that this so-called social ostracism that he's advocating, that he describes in verse 14, will actually be the straw that breaks the camel's back and brings the disobedient back into the fold. Now, I don't know about you, but just the thought of complete disfellowship with someone that's been a part of the church um, makes people a little bit nervous. Sometimes it seems too harsh to even contemplate. 
But verse 15 that we read earlier shows us that Paul's heart is not hard. He's not calling for discipline here in anger or for retribution. And he's not asking the Thessalonians to make war on the disobedient. He's not saying, you go out there and make them miserable because they're your enemies. Paul's desire is to balance discipline with love for the sake of the sheep that he loves and for the sake of the the health of the church that he loves. Galatians 6.1, these are also Paul's words. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. And he says this to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. You know, as a shepherd with a true heart for the sheep, Paul's desire is discipline balanced with love that leads to repentance. Let's read our final two verses and finish up. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us. Oh, whoops, I'm reading the wrong two verses. Sorry. Verse 16. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. And this is how I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. You know, Paul's second letter here to the Thessalonians has been pretty short. But if you think back on it, it's been filled with a lot of high drama. There's a lot of drama in these few short uh, verses here. He's talked about in chapter 1, he talked about God's retribution um, on evil and the eternal destruction of the Thessalonians' enemies. And in chapter 2, he talked about the day of the Lord and the man of lawlessness and the Antichrist. There was certainly a lot of drama in that. And now he's given us a little bit more drama as he's encouraged us to be a part of um, bringing the disobedient back into the fold. But he ends right here with his pastor's heart right on his sleeve. In his final verses, he closes by asking God that he would grant the Thessalonians two things, two things that he considers so significant. The first one is spiritual peace. You know, he would love it if they had world peace, if they were not troubled or persecuted at all, but what he really wants for them is spiritual peace. That comes only through the Lord their God. And then he asks for God's divine grace. And his shepherd heart tells him that with those two blessings in their life, spiritual peace and divine grace that his sheep and his church that he loves so much will not only be encouraged, but they will prosper. Pray with me. Father, you are um, our great God. And we want to be women who recognize who we are in light of who you are. And Father, I thank you for these words. I thank you for the fact that Paul is such an example as a pastor and a leader in the church and that we can look to him as we um, examine our own churches and our own leadership. Thank you for that. Father, for these women, I ask that your hand of favor, that your spiritual peace and your divine grace would be a part of their lives. Um, I pray this in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now I want to invite, he must be invited.